Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, after a brief, brief uh, one week hiatus from our ranking set, I've got Andrew Berkshire back on the line to continue with uh, ranking the defensemen. So, Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much. Just uh, finally feeling healthy, man. I think you and I have been through the ringer the last uh, month or so, <laughs> respectively, and it's been uh, a good start to uh, fall, eh? Like. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm afraid of winter. I am afraid of winter too, and I imagine yours in uh, over in Montreal is a is a bit colder than mine here in Vancouver. But I, uh, I have it's like a great running uh, annual tradition of I always get sick like the first week of the season. It's like right in that I guess like the first or second week of October usually, and it's kind of transitioning and getting a bit colder, getting a bit wetter, and all of a sudden like I. The first day of the year, I feel like I'm always like struggling through a headache and congestion and trying to power through and watch the games. But my excitement for the, the NHL season finally being here p- helps me power through it. And hopefully uh, the excitement of doing this show and ranking the top 20 defensemen is going to help you power through yours. That's what's gotten me through the last two weeks, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, you live a very sad life, my friend. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so before we get into ranking the top 20 defensemen... Um, you know, people can go back and we've done the centers and the wingers so far and they can listen to that more for uh, methodology and, and us kind of breaking down what goes into these pieces that we're doing. Um, for the defensemen, though, I feel like there's some other bigger picture questions that I wanted to flush out with you because whenever it comes to evaluating uh, defensive play and ranking players playing this position, it's so tricky because... If you're just looking purely at offensive production and point totals, uh, you can obviously get led horribly astray. And there's so much that goes into the craft and into the position and into making a player effective that might not necessarily be captured by uh, especially traditional numbers. So when it comes to evaluating defensemen, um, what are you... Do you have any um, inherent personal biases in terms of player types that you prefer? Or is there certain... um, 
certain skills or certain performance indicators through the numbers that you are looking for that make you go, okay, this is the type of defenseman I value more than someone else might and what other guys contribute? Well, I definitely have to say that the two main things I look at are uh, plus minus and wins. Mm. I'm very much of the Ben Bishop model. The, the, no, defen- uh, the defen- defenseman, defenseman wins. That's a stat yeah, that's not currently cited a lot, but it should be. It, it's a stat that I made up myself. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, so the things that I look at and uh, the styles that I prefer, there's definitely some bias in there. I find um, some of my own biases from a few years ago have been kind of kicked down a notch. Um, I definitely have less uh, natural inclination to go for the high-end offense-producing defenseman. Mm -hmm. Uh, That still obviously has value, but uh, for example, Brett Burns would be lower on my list than a lot of other people just because of uh, certain big weaknesses in his game. So uh, yeah, uh, guys like Brent Burns, uh, Roman Yossi are sometimes uh, pushed a little bit further down my list because of specific weaknesses. So I I like to look at, like I do in all my... uh, uh, top 20s for sports and that I break the game down into three categories that aren't necessarily, you know, um, separate. I think that everything involves uh, like transition, for example, is right. part of offense and part of defense. It's the middle of the road that connects everything. So like, you can't really isolate anything perfectly, but I, I like to look at the different components of the game and how they play off each other. And uh, players who aren't great at all three are usually outside my top area Mm -hmm. uh so some guys get a knockdown further than you would expect and then there's uh you know i I think i put less value each year into certain on ice statistics because there's just a lot of noise in there that you can't isolate for uh specific players i like to look at some of the individual things that they do in order to figure out like if say if somebody has like a, a great core c4 percentage relative to team But I'm going through all of the data and I see like, you know, there's really nothing there individually that they do great. Uh, You're kind of left with two options. Do you think that there is something that you're missing that's showing up in the Corsi data or there's some noise in there and the player might be a little bit overrated? And uh, unless it's a player that I've watched and, you know, saw him good Hmm. and thinks he has a great positioning and and there's something that uh, is missing in the data, then usually I air on the side of this player's kind of being inflated by somebody else. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, there's a lot to get to there. Yeah. I, I'm definitely with you. I feel like I, uh, I know it's a bit of a cliche at this point to go with a quote unquote puck moving defenseman, but just, um, in terms of player types that I like or, or what I prefer, it's sort of that smooth player through transition, whether it's, um, moving the puck himself or whether it's disrupting, um, by defending and then you know creating changes of possession that way, um, I, I seem to really key in on the neutral zone and focus on it. There, it's it's really tough um, in certain instances to evaluate some of these guys because you know, for example, with the Columbus pairing, um, we're going to talk about both Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski, and they're both mm-hmm. great players in their own right. I think Seth Jones is a superior player, but it's really tricky sometimes to kind of separate. Um, whether it's just you know a perfectly symbiotic relationship and both guys are great, and if you split them up and had them playing with separate uh, inferior uh, defense partners, they'd both still be doing fine. Or whether one guy is kind of carrying another guy a bit more. We'll, we'll talk about sort of what's been going on in, Ca- in Calgary the past few years as well without and Mark Giordano. But it's you know like I think in before this season, I believe Zach Rensky had only played like 
200 515 minutes or something in his career without Seth Jones by him and obviously we saw a, a, a healthier sample of that earlier this year with Seth Jones out to begin the season but sometimes it's also really tricky to just know how, like who to give the credit for when two guys are pretty much uh, linked entirely and on the ice at all times together and you just don't know how to figure that out as well yeah absolutely and you know I think also you have to kind of figure out where you think the position is going because I think defense is a very dynamic and changing position in the NHL whereas you know 10 years ago maybe 14 years ago you remember like you look at the world cup team that canada put together and you're like man that that defense core is just terrible and it's not even you know hindsight bias of watching those players post lockout like even pre-lockout if you would put that together it's barely better than you know an nhl roster of defensemen with like scott hannon and uh (laughs) old adam foot you know it's a very strange construction but that was the type of defenseman that was valued back then. And that's what the position was like before the crackdown on, on obstruction. Whereas now, you know, after the lockout, there was a heavy movement towards defensemen who could score a lot, uh, especially on the power play. And now, like you said, the puck moving defenseman is the big key, right? So like the defenseman is now almost like a quarterback where they're relied on, not necessarily to produce the offense because the league as a whole is kind of going away from that, especially in the power play. You see, the most successful power plays aren't built around a point shot anymore. That's kind of disappearing. It's all around working the puck down low and getting the puck into the slot uh, for you know the, the better snipers, the better forwards. And some power plays are you know, most power plays now. I'd say are down to one defenseman at the at the top of the point. Some are down to none. Yeah. So I, I think that everything changes every couple of years for defensemen. We're definitely looking as defensemen more as support and disrupt than create and that's an interesting thing to look at because some players can change their game and continue to be a top defenseman while being that support and disrupt player and some players are so great at creating like say an eric carlson Mm -hmm. that they manage to stay the same player and still be dominant in their field position yes no well yeah of course as uh the positional demands and requirements are obviously changing as the as the game evolves but it's it's also a bit tricky um because you know sometimes we can kind of conflate high point totals with uh being a a good quote-unquote puck moving defenseman and then there's guys Mm -hmm. like you know whether it was been anton strawman over the years or i feel like campus Lindholm's kind of taken over that mantle or maybe even a jacob slavin eventually over the next couple years where it's like those guys are incredibly smooth and efficient with the puck. And if you watch them, you know, they're perfectly fine with breakouts and they're great passers and they get the puck moving in the right direction for their teams a lot. But just because, you know, they're not constantly the center, they're not the centerpiece of the offense in the offensive zone where the puck's flowing through them and they're relied upon in a more traditional sense to just wire the puck on net and see what happens, kind of like a Brent Burns type. They might not necessarily be putting up huge point totals. So I think guys like that can sometimes um, get lost in the shuffle a bit in these discussions just because you know they don't have 40 50 assists a season so all of a sudden people just don't think that they're as offensively gifted as they actually are and a lot of that has to do with usage as well right like if you are constantly um having to be relied upon to play in your own zone against other teams best players chances are you're probably not going to be um having the best or most optimal offensive output just because that's not the role and what you need to be providing to your team uh, yeah, Warenski's a super interesting guy because you look at his start of the season without Jones and it hasn't been great. And I think that's going to be a, a really fun thing to talk about to see what uh, we believe about him. You know, small sample size, but at the same time, 
it's it's interesting to see what uh, he's like without Jones. And I think those kinds of pairings, I think it's always tough to tease out, you know, even in players that we know are great separately, uh, like P- P.K. Subban, Matthias Ekholm, uh, you know, Roman Yossi and uh, Ryan, Ryan Ellis, Ellis yep. who's actually driving those lines or uh, pairings. I find that to be a super interesting continuing question throughout, uh, you know, covering hockey over the last however many years that I've been doing it. Yeah, one other trend that I've noticed early in the season has been, you know, teams are just much more willing to um, hand the car keys to and unleash some of these younger, more skilled defensemen that we're seeing. I feel like maybe five, ten years ago, uh, when there was still this kind of prevalent belief around the league and in hockey circles that uh, defensemen develop at at a later age and you needed to let them physically mature in season in the lower levels and on third pairings, now we're seeing whether it's with guys like Rasmus Dahlin or... Mira Heiskanen or Thomas Shabbat or Henry Yokoharu, like there's these guys that are all of a sudden being relied upon to play heavy minutes on top pairings and thriving. And part of that probably has to do with the the game has changed and the positional demands have as well. And you don't need to be some sort of big physical lumbering guy that can clear out traffic in front of your goalie. Um, but hopefully that's something that's going to continue and not just uh, sort of recency bias or an early season blip on the radar because yeah, like I said, I feel like a handful of years ago, we wouldn't have been able to, we wouldn't have been treated to watching these guys on such a consistent basis. And we were always clamoring for these young defensemen to get more of an opportunity. And it feels like early on this year, that actually is something that we're seeing materialize. Yeah, I feel like, you know, Miro Heiskanen's first shift in the NHL this year, or first shift of his career probably wouldn't have happened. Or, you know, he would have been sat down on the bench for 10 to 15 minutes afterwards right. uh, if he had done it a few years ago because, you know, that level of freedom isn't afforded to most players or hasn't been for a really long time. But, man, how exciting is it that it is now? I feel like we're kind of in the dawn of a new era in that respect, and uh, I hope that that continues because, you know, coaches for a long time have kind of been taking some of the fun out of the game and it seems like that's starting to go away. I think we're in our third straight season now of uh, increased scoring, and I don't think that's a coincidence. No, I don't think so either. Um, I did have a couple other notes here because we really should get into these actual rankings, but um, a topic that is always a fascinating one, and there's a lot of uh, you know debate and discussion about it, and you could take it in many different ways, but it's sort of what you're looking for with underlying trends with defensemen in terms of a player because there's a bunch of guys in recent history that you know they they're thriving in third pair sheltered roles and you know their shot share and their and, and everything and all their underlying metrics look amazing but then if they get a larger opportunity and all of a sudden get more put on their plate obviously they you generally don't wind up looking as good like what what sort of things are we looking at beyond oh this third pairing defenseman has a 56 percent Corsi uh like are we just looking at actually uh extrapolating that stuff a bit further and going like okay this is what's causing that they're actually a really good puck mover they're really good at defending zone entries that'll lead us to believe that they are ready for a bigger role down the line yeah I think it's it's some of that some of the individual stuff but I, I think it's also you know you look at players who are playing third pairing role who are sheltered in specific ways right so like if a player is just sheltered for competition or you know zone starts I I feel like most of the time those players can move up the lineup and have a lot of success but it's when they're sheltered for teammates as well right so like if your third pairing is 
always playing with uh, possession driving center and they're they're not willing to uh, risk putting out their third pairing with their fourth line or third line where there's a bit more uh, you know inherent risk involved and a little bit more defensive responsibility uh, thrust upon them then maybe you say you know the quality of teammates is uh, fairly high even though they're being uh, sheltered away from top competition so you are a bit more hesitant to move them up the lineup mm-hmm. but you know we we've seen a lot of guys recently move up from third pairing and uh, continue to maintain their success. Uh, you know, I was kind of dubious about Mark Barbario, but I think after a bit of a rough start this season, uh, you know, he's back to his normal. And uh, last year he was great for Colorado. There's, it seems like every year there's a few guys well, that move up and we're, we're kind of proven that uh, some of those statistics are a little bit more predictive than maybe they were given credit for. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that was a, uh, that was Vegas's uh, expansion draft strategy with guys like uh, Colin Miller and, and Nate Schmidt and even yeah, Brady McNabb type. It's like, oh, you know, these guys have had great underlying numbers, but maybe for whatever reason they've been either lost in the shuffle or part of the numbers game or what have you and haven't had an opportunity to play higher up in the lineup on their previous team. And now we're going to give them, since there's, you know, no... In, there's no uh, blockages for them here. There's no uh, nothing in the way. So let's just give them an opportunity and see what, what comes of it. And all those guys pretty much for the most part rewarded them. So, yeah, I know, I know it's a bit of a, you know, cliche. There's been guys like, uh, I don't know, who's a classic example. Like, an, I feel like Eric Jelenoff for a year or two in, in uh, New Jersey had ridiculous uh, numbers. But as soon as he went to, I believe it was like Cal- uh, Colorado, I think, and all of a sudden he was exposed. So there's been countless examples also of guys who, uh, just because of the way they were being used, were looking a lot better than they were. But I do feel like, um, you know, that's obviously an interesting thing because we're all constantly looking for, um, you know, market inefficiencies and ways teams can exploit the market by squeezing out some a little, little additional extra value. And part of that is probably identifying guys who are playing in lesser roles on different teams and targeting them and, you know, identifying them as guys who p- could potentially play a much bigger role for you and thrive. And so that's always an interesting discussion for me in terms of what you're looking for with defensemen and how you know which way it's going to go with some of these uh, third pairing guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, everybody loves the Julius Honka Wars, right? Mm, yes, we should. Have, we should have had like a, a Tyler Dello soundbite for this episode to uh, chime in on that. Yeah, see, I feel like he'd be a really interesting guy to talk to because he's one of the few people who kind of doubt Eric Carlson. Right. And I, I know what he is talking about in terms of like the data that he works with, why he you know, doubts Eric Carlson a little bit because some of the on ice data is not exactly flattering. And and you look at, you know, yes, he's playing on a weak team in Ottawa, but how much should that excuse him uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, on ice goals, right? Like Mm -hmm. for a large sample, his on ice goals are not the best. But then when I look into the individual data and I look at like what he's actually doing defensively, like he comes out on top. Like it's crazy how good he is and how aggressive of a defender he is that uh, I just find it hard to believe that all of these data points can point towards him being great, but then the goal thing points towards him being, you know, maybe a little bit overrated. I feel like if anything is lying, it's probably the goals, right? Because mm-hmm. if you do all this stuff well, th- there's just something going on there with, you know, poor partners in Ottawa and for the last couple of years, at least, he hasn't had the highest quality of teammates. That's uh, There's just too much for me pointing towards Eric Carlson still being the best defenseman in the NHL to, to move him down anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, Eric Carlson being actually good at hockey is, some, is a hill I'm willing to die on. 
I will, I'll, t- I'll take that <laughs> yeah, exactly. side and take on all, all comers. Um, okay, we're going to do... We're going to get into the rankings now, finally. 20 minutes in. Yeah, awesome. Um, we're going to take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor, and then we're going to do our honorable mentions on the other side of things, and we're going to get right into the, uh, into the top 20. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust out there. That's why SeatGeek's the way to go, because they're going to pull millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek's going to get you closer to action for a great value. SeatGeek's designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before. By grading every ticket based on value, they're going to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. And you can rest easy knowing that every purchase you make with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with supreme confidence. That's why you need to make them your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I actually have the app on my phone and I've found that time and time again, it's the easiest way to shop for tickets. I actually got to use it uh, the other day. I'm going to the Drake and Migos concert this weekend here in Vancouver with a group of friends. And initially I decided just because I've been so wrapped up with the hockey season and busy with work and life to take a bit of a step back and allow some of the more proactive uh, members of the friend group to try and go about getting uh, and securing the tickets for a lot of us. Um, unfortunately, after a couple of weeks of the message thread that we have going on uh, blowing up with questions and concerns and consternation and wondering whether we'd ever be able to find the tickets we were looking for. I decided enough was enough. I pulled up SeatGeek on my phone and within a couple clicks, we had exactly what we were looking for. We found uh, a big group of tickets in the same row so we could all sit together for a completely reasonable price. And just like that, we got everything we needed. And now we're going to go to the show. I'm really excited about it. Plus, I got to look really, uh, really clutch in front of my friends, all thanks to SeatGeek. So that was pretty cool as well. And the best of all is, um, as my listener, not only will you get that luxury, but you're also going to get $20 off your first purchase with SeatGeek. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today. That's promo code PDO for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now let's get back to the show. Okay. Um Let's rattle off a couple of honorable mentions because I'd say, you know, this wasn't obviously as tricky uh, of a ranking to do as when we did the wingers, for example, just because we smashed the left and right wingers together and there were so many names to choose from. Um, But I feel like there's probably, I'm going to say like 27 or 28, or maybe you could even talk me up to being 30 guys that could potentially be up for consideration for this top 20. So I feel like there's at least a handful of guys um, that we're going to overlap on that we really wanted to sneak into this top 20, but we just couldn't find space for. And this is the part of the show where we're going to give them a bit of love. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll start out with uh, the Minnesota twins who basically have the exact same impacts on the game, but do it in extremely different ways in uh, Ryan Suter and Jared Spurgeon. Mm Mm-hmm. Very, very different players, but end up, you know, offensively, transitionally, and defensively having almost identical impacts on the game, which I find really interesting and really crazy. I do as well. And Ryan Suter is a tricky player to evaluate because obviously, you know, he's rock solid. He doesn't make a ton of mistakes. I feel like sometimes maybe he can be a bit overly conservative with that, especially when it comes to uh, with passes he makes in his own zone. But he's also one of those guys where like, and I said, we don't, we still don't have an answer for this. And I feel like even last year or even the year before this came up when we were ranking our defenseman, but we still don't necessarily have a definitive uh, answer on sort of 
what the optimal amount of ice time on the higher extreme is for a defenseman to be fully functional. And I feel like some of that might be, it's probably on a case by case basis and you can't necessarily make a general rule. But when you watch a guy like Ryan Suter, especially in the past, I know his minutes have come down a little bit, but you can't help but wonder like, you know, part of that economy and efficiency that is such an asset for him could also be a bit of a detriment because it feels like, you know, it's human nature to not necessarily be going a hundred miles an hour on every shift when you know that you're going to have to be playing 30 minutes that night and it's you know the, it's the first period and there's not much going on and i wonder whether that efficiency costs him a bit in terms of effectiveness just because of the workload and if he played less whether he'd be a more effective player like that's a, a, a question that we don't really have an answer to but i think is fair to wonder just based on common sense i guess yeah, I feel like it's the eternal question, and it'll be around even after he's you know retired, is what would Ryan Suter look like if he was playing 22, 23 minutes a night instead? Right. You know, and maybe it's a situation where he's a special defenseman who is at his best playing the, like that high level of minutes, kind of like Chris Pronger, right? But it's, it's super tough to know. And I guess there's just – you have to – be satisfied with the idea that sometimes you just won't get an answer <laughs> <laughs> which is okay i know uh, it's not necessarily the most satisfying thing for people and i'm sure people are tuning into this podcast and you know when they read our articles and stuff they do want a definitive answer or some guidance but you know rather than steering people down the wrong direction or kind of uh sending selling them some snake oil i think it's okay to you know pose these questions and kind of think about it but not necessarily have a definitive answer right away um i had the uh i guess the Minnesota Twins was a was a was a good name. Uh, I have the two uh, the two Washington defensemen, uh, Dmitry Orlov and Matt Niskanen. Honorable mentions. Oh, you had Matt Niskanen that high above John Carlson. I add John Carlson to this list too. Sure. Um, yeah. I've uh, yeah. You know, I've talked about Carlson a bunch on this show. I think like you know, obviously his individual physical uh, skills and tool set is incredible. There's always been. Um, a weird sort of gap there for me between how good he can look at times and what his overall numbers are like, but he's obviously a very uh, effective and useful defenseman. I, I don't know. I, I do have a bit of a soft spot for the madness can types where he's, he is sort of like that Anton Strawman kind of defenseman where it's like, he's really smooth and he does so much for his team and he never really puts up the huge offensive numbers. Cause you know, that's partly not his game. And I'm, I'm sure he doesn't have that high end offensive skill that some of these other guys we're going to talk about do, but He's been so effective for so long, and that and that top pairing with him and Orlov, and Orlov in particular was a name that I want to discuss because I couldn't put him into my top twenty here. But during last year's Stanley Cup run for them, he was so so good, and he was doing everything for them in transition, and he really kind of won me over. So I just wanted to give them a bit of credit here, even though I couldn't put them into my top twenty. Yeah, I, I feel like it's not a controversial take on the PDO cast, but in the general hockey world saying Dmitry Orlov is the Capitals' best defenseman is probably still a bit of a, a hot take. Eh? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to denigrate him, but I think John Carlson is one of those players that gets knocked down my list quite a lot further than people would expect because the gaudy offensive numbers aren't necessarily reflective of what he's doing as an individual. Um, I kind of have the same questions about his numbers as I do about Morgan Riley, is how much is him and how much is being the guy who's happens to be pretty offensively talented, but you know, not the most talented offensive defenseman in the NHL, but stuck on one of the best power plays the NHL has ever seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm sure that's not hurting his case. 
No, no. Um, what about uh, I have Matthias Ekholm here as well. Mm, I had Matthias Ekholm. Yep, just outside my top he's, twenty. I had he's so 22. good. He's so good. Which it, I, I, I don't want to like. Uh, you know, the fact that we don't have him in our top twenty, which is why I, I did want to at least give him a bit of love. It, it's not that he's not uh, worthy of consideration by any means, or he's not a great player. It's just yeah, there's there's so many. Um, you know individual names here to, to get to and and he just uh missed the cut by a little bit but yeah he's a, he's another one of those guys that he's just looks he's tremendous he pretty much does everything well and i i do wonder like if he was in a different circumstance and he was just sort of the guy on let's say kind of a, a more crappy team that didn't have a ton of well that wasn't blessed with an embarrassment of riches on the blue line and he had to play like 26 27 minutes a night and just be the complete workhorse for that team i'm very curious to see what that would look like and, and what his numbers would be like. I'm not, I, I I don't think we have any reason to believe that he wouldn't be able to handle it, but it'd just be fascinating to see. Yeah. I feel like he's the kind of guy that he definitely benefits from having, like everybody obviously benefits from, you know, being stacked at a position that you play at. It, it helps to play with great players, but he, he's just continually getting better. Like, his career arc is super interesting to me because as it continues, it seems like earlier in his career, he was a bit hesitant to, you know, use his offensive talent and he he was very focused on defense and he still is. He's a great defensive defenseman, but now sometimes you see him pinch and, you know, circle the zone like he's Peter Forsberg and, and find roots through, through checks. It, it's just incredible. Like the amount of talent that he has, he has along with his like physical uh, abilities, like he he almost looks like he could have been a forward if he wanted to. Yeah, like a dominant power forward. Yeah, during that Stanley, yeah. during that Stanley Cup final run they had two years ago, there was definitely instances where he would just like drive the net with a puck and you'd be like, oh my god, like what if what if this guy just did this all the time? And obviously uh, <laughs> that's not possible. But it's it's uh, yeah, he's got obviously an incredibly enticing skill set and he does a ton for that national team and he deserves some love. Um, another personal favorite of mine uh, on the hockey PDO cast here, and I think he did sneak into your top twenty, or at least he did on your written list. Is Colton Pareko, and I feel felt like that would be a good uh, a good segue here. Is he on your um, updated top twenty that you are doing on this show? Yes, yes, he is. Uh, he just made it in, just like uh, with the top twenties. I really like Colton Pareko. I think he's uh, he's going to be a great defenseman for a really long time. Um, the only other guy that I had written down that we haven't mentioned yet as an honor honorable mention, and he just like I, it pained me a little bit to leave him out was Jacob Slavin. Oh, oh, Andrew. He's not in your top 20? He's 21, 21. Oh, man. I have him in my top 10. Wow, wow. It's a bit of a difference. That's, that's good. Yeah, I'm excited that's good. to talk about him yeah. then when we get up there. Okay, all right. Let's do, uh, let's do, let's do Pareko now. Let's get into your top 20, and we'll, uh, we'll talk more about Slavin when we get closer uh, to all him right. on my list. Pareko. Yeah, I really like him. I think he's, uh, he's a really interesting and uh, versatile defenseman. Sorry, I'm just trying to like angle myself yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, repositioning there, getting really excited, hot and bothered talking about Colton Pareko. Yeah, Colton Pareko. I just like watching him, man. Like he, he's kind of like so a bit good, of a throwback yeah. at at times. You know, like, he can he can play that like physical defenseman role. He can move the puck. Uh, great on zone exits. He, he's another guy that probably, if he wasn't behind, you know, Petrangelo on the depth chart, we'd talk about him a lot more. Mm-hmm. He, he's a guy that I think we talk about more on like web-based platforms than they do on like broadcasts. Uh, even though, you know, his rookie year, he definitely got a little bit more press, but yep. uh, I, I think people have kind of been underrating him since then. Cause he had a tiny bit of a sophomore slump, 
but not really like under the surface. He was he was still pretty great, and uh, he he's just continued to you know sl- get slightly better. Uh, as his career has gone on, I, I think he's a fantastic defenseman, uh, a building block that uh, St. Louis obviously really values. Yeah, no, I agree. I think he um, and he didn't get bumped down my list for this by any means, but he did. I felt like struggle a little bit last year, but I think the the bigger trick for me here was just like I wish, and this isn't a fault of his by any means, but I wish he was used a bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. In St. Louis, and you know, part of that is is they do rely on the Petrangelo pairing above him a bit more, and he sort of gets uh, second fiddle duty there. But it, just for him to crack this top twenty for me, I would have liked to. And this is probably going to come in the next couple of years as he develops more and as um, as things change there in St. Louis. But I just would have liked to see him uh, relied upon and used a bit more heavily considering some of the other names that are up for discussion here. But, I mean, people that listen to the show know that uh, since his rookie year, I've been a big believer. I love that a guy, uh, you know, who profiles the way he does in terms of physical stature is actually as smooth skating and slick with a puck as he is. Um, and, yeah, he does pretty much everything well, and I'd love to see him used more. And uh, he could very easily, if we're doing this list again next year, be inside this top 20. So, um, yeah, I love Colin Preco. He just uh, – he was in my, like – in that 25 to 30 range for me. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's fair. Like we discussed on the other podcasts, right? Like the, the gap between, yeah. you know, 15 to 30 is not large. There's so many good defensemen in the league. It, it's kind of like you have your, your, un, your unbiased rankings in like groups. And then you pick your favorite guys, right? Like you've got your tiered system essentially. Whereas, you know, there's like a, a set, there's like, the Eric Carlson, then the tier of four, and then a huge group of like 10 or 15 guys. And then, you know, another 20 guys after that. So it's don't get as much as it's a ranking. Don't get too into where exactly guys are placed, because I think it's more about like naming the guys and talking about how special they are. Yeah. It's amazing how when people listen to the show, they definitely don't ever miss the part where we talk about their player their favorite player but they somehow tune out that part that disclaimer about uh not getting worked up about the actual ranking good stuff good stuff um (laughs) okay so where do you have prego on your list did you have him at 20 or i had him at 19 okay so so slightly let's go uh give me like your 20 and your 18 and we'll we'll just uh count down that way okay my 20 is uh, a guy that i moved up from my official rankings for Sportsnet a little bit mm. uh you can call it bias but i'm looking more towards the future and that's dougie hamilton mm-hmm. and then my 18 was zach Wierenski. okay i had uh i had both dougie hamilton and zach Wierenski in that uh 15 to 20 range so that works for me um let's uh let's let's go with dougie first so here's a question for you why so this is the third stop now i guess you know early on in his uh in his boston tenure it's it's understandable with uh with a younger defenseman not to be just fully unleashed but now with going from calgary to carolina um i was super excited about what he was going to do with the hurricanes this year and obviously the hurricanes have been a great story they've been playing tremendous hockey um whenever Dougie Hamilton's on the ice and pretty much when, any, when anyone on that team is on the ice, they are completely dominating the shot counter. Yet for whatever reason now, uh, yet again, I feel like Dougie Hamilton is being underutilized. Yeah. I, he. This is a confusing one to me because there aren't very many, you know, 
what would I call it? Like hiccups in Hamilton's game that make you think like, okay, you know, this is why the coach doesn't fully trust him. You know, like overall, like I I think he's a little bit overrated by the general analytics community. Uh, I think playing with Mark Giordano helps everyone, but he's still a top end defenseman, like a, a number one defenseman on almost every team. So it, it's very confusing to me why he kind of continually gets second pair style minutes. Uh, I, I just, I can't figure it out. I've been trying to, because, you know, when he went to Carolina, I figured, you know, maybe his minutes would be a little bit lower than uh, people expected simply because of the fact that their top five is absolutely absurd. And they, they've got to find a way to get minutes to all those players. So it'd be a bit more balanced, mm-hmm. but you know, um, I haven't watched any Carolina games in the last week or two, but uh, I think he's still not on the first power play, right? No, he's not. So he's playing under 20 minutes a night. And, you know, at 5-on-5, I believe he's second on the team um, behind Slavin uh, in terms of 5-on-5 usage. But, yeah, he's not on the first unit power play, and he doesn't kill penalties for them. It's it's weird to me that... um, you know, obviously his point totals and his ability to score goals from that position is kind of his calling card or something he's really good at. But if you, if you like, he's clearly trusted by the coaching staff to play on that top, uh, quote unquote, shutdown defense pairing with Slavin at five on five. Yet for whatever reason, he's not relied upon to be on the penalty kill and yeah, on the power play. And it's, it's, that's what's, what's bizarre to me because, you know, in the past, um, in Calgary, we'd be like, okay, he needs to be playing much more at 5-on-5, but at least they were using him on special teams. And now in Carolina, it's kind of flip-flop, but the overall package of his total usage is still not nearly enough. Like, a guy of his caliber should not be playing under 20 minutes a night. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense. I, I, I think that that's the main thing that really confuses me is, you know, far be it from me to question the Carolina Hurricanes right now because Rod Brindamore has them humming. Like, they are playing fantastic hockey. But it, it is super strange to see a guy like Hamilton be trusted in ways that he hasn't been, you know, earlier in his career. You know, like there's no problems five on five, but then not putting him on the power play. I mean, maybe it's just their power play setup isn't built to his skill set. I'm just not sure. Hmm. But that is just but their so strange. Has been very bad so far. I feel like yeah, definitely their penalty yeah. kill. I don't, I don't, I don't know their power play numbers, but I feel like it. <laughs> has room to improve like their five on five has been immaculate i feel like the special teams and the goaltending are the two areas they could fix and maybe they should try him in net i guess i don't know <laughs> try him in net <laughs> yeah i, I there, there are a lot of questions like that around the league where i just can't figure it out and you know some of it is just like coaches like a certain player and they, they like a certain specific yeah. thing that they do on that area but when you're not getting results usually coaches shake it up right like I guess sometimes if there had been a history of results, they don't like, I remember watching, um, you know, the Dale Weiss saga in, in Montreal where Weiss, I think it was like in October, he had something like eight goals one year and he basically rode shotgun with Max patch ready for the entire rest of the year because of it. He got power play time because of it. And he scored like maybe four more goals the rest of the year. Yeah. And, you know, like they just kept on going back to it and going back to it and going back to it. And, you know, 
uh, last year in Montreal, a similar thing happened with Nick Delorier, who has had trouble sticking in the NHL for a variety of very good reasons throughout his career. But uh, he had this like crazy shooting percentage last year, and I think he hit 10 goals. And then this year, you know, they've scratched Andrew Shaw for him. And, you know, Andrew Shaw is not a perfect player by any means and has been overrated at times because of the cup wins. But I think he's a he's a really good middle six uh, winger. And to scratch him for a fourth line guy because he had a great shooting percentage is, uh, you know, kind of insane. But those are the kinds of things that coaches do that drive people like you and I mad. But the Hamilton thing, it doesn't make sense because he has the history of success. He is being trusted at five on five. It just it's crazy to me, especially, you know, a guy who I think Hamilton's increased his goal scoring like every one of the last five years or something like that has he yeah no i mean he's listen he's a he's a great player and i think part of that part of it is can be kind of as simple as there's a certain uh human element or or uh personal preference or bias involved with 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 coaches and i feel like this happens a lot in hockey circles and i'm sure it happens in in every industry but like when a guy gets um a rep for something or there's like the industry just kind of decides that we're going to view a player a certain way. It's really tough to shake those labels or kind of change that perception. So the fact that a guy goes from one team to another might not change immediately change the way he's used because, you know, we know definitely that coaches aren't typically the uh, very aggressive types in terms of uh, going against the grain sometimes, and you can kind of go with status quo. And so I know Rod Brinamore has done a really good job so far in Carolina and, and, the hurricanes are you know mixing stuff up and having some fun out there but it can sometimes be as simple as like if a guy comes in with a certain set of baggage all of a sudden um it's really tough to shake that and and the, the coach that's inheriting that player might just kind of go with that like you know in the past it's like oh dougie hamilton has all these flaws and we're not sure about him as a player and the new coach might just kind of go with that as sort of the working definition of that player rather than uh, evaluating it from scratch. And that can, can be kind of frustrating sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So we should probably move on from Hamilton before it becomes the, the Hamilton podcast mm. and get to uh, Zach Wierenski. So yeah. rough start for Wierenski to start the season, but uh, I don't know. I, I look at him. I look at the individual stuff. I'm, I'm not that worried. Are you worried? No, 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 I'm not. I, it's been a, strange uh start to the year in columbus and a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that they just haven't gotten the goaltending they'd expect out of sergey Bobrovsky. and i believe last night on uh, thursday night in san jose he had 40 plus saves and gave up only one goal against san jose and yeah if he gives them more of those performances i feel like that team's going to turn it around and I, and I know what you mean but I, I guess part of it is like maybe just going from playing with seth jones to playing with david savard for all those minutes and marcus nudibara just that's a pretty big step down and might not necessarily be a huge indictment of of zach Rensky, especially over like a 10 game sample or whatever it was yeah uh, i think that's also one of the things that kind of gets missed a lot when we look at like wow he's like what is the player that's replacing the good player like and you know I don't want to crap on Nudivara or Savard, but they, they certainly aren't Seth Jones. And when you're thrust into the tough minutes that that uh, Waransky plays, it's uh, it's a bit of a, a struggle to, yeah. <laughs> to continue to play at the same level. But at the same time, I would expect Waransky to maintain, you know, positive differentials. And that well, hasn't been the case for him so far. I, I just... I think maybe it's a combination of losing Jones and just not having a good personal start as well. Maybe, you know, he psyched himself out a little bit. 
knowing that Jones wouldn't be around for the start of the season. Maybe it's just, you know, a rough start for various other reasons. Maybe he's nursing something. But uh, Wierenski a guy who, you know, from his rookie year onward, I- I've been really, really hyped up about because uh, looking back at, uh, you know, the total um, impacts of, of his rookie season, he actually should have been a Norris nominee that mm. first year, which is crazy. So like the, his first year in the, in the, the NHL, he was actually better than Jones. And last year Jones was the better player. So I find it interesting that it kind of alternated each year who was, you know, boosting the other one more. Uh, th- those are two good players that, uh, you know, Columbus is going to be a tough out once uh, they're both back and healthy. Yeah. I feel like if, um, if that 10 game stretch happened in the middle of the season that he just had, um, yeah, no one it cares. W- yeah, it would, it would just be like, you know, Oh, whatever. It's a mid season swoon. And, and at his age and with his talent, there's no reason to believe that, you know, he randomly, uh, dropped off in terms of talent level over the summer. So it's, uh, I, I think he's going to be perfectly fine. And I'm excited to watch that pairing reunited. I, I, I do believe though, last year, Wrensky did miss some time, right? And Seth Jones like really turned it up even in extra gear without him, which I thought was interesting. But you know, I, I, I think we'd both agree that Seth Jones is the superior player on that pairing. But there's plenty yeah. of room for both guys to be on this list. Yeah, and I, and I think it's also it's worth noting the superior player right now. You know, at, at a certain point in their careers, Wrensky might uh, overtake Jones, but at, at this stage right now, I would say Jones is the superior player, and he keeps getting better. I, I don't know, like I don't know. Uh, Jones really closely in terms of like what he's like uh, personally Uh, you know I haven't seen very many interviews with him Mm -hmm. but he just strikes me as like hyper motivated you know what I mean like uh, you remember a couple years ago he quoted like one day he was going to win the Norris he was quoted as saying And, and I feel like to say that as a young player shows an attitude of you know not only wanting to be the best, but like knowing that you have the capability to be the best. And I love that. I, I love that attitude from Jones. And you can see that he's worked at different areas of his game to become better. Uh, you know, last year he just had uh, a great offensive season in terms of directly creating offense that he hasn't really had uh, before then. So he's always been a great passer, but he has been kind of more indirectly involved in the offense. And last year, he just became a much more aggressive player. And Mm -hmm. I I can't wait for him to get back because he's one of my favorite defensemen to watch right now. Yeah, I think um, he, yeah, he proclaimed that he was going to win the Norris one day. And I think he will. I think he he was on my my fake ballot last year. So I thought he had one heck of a season. Okay, so we have uh, have 2019 and 18 on your list. Let's, uh, Let's keep going. All right, so at 17, I have um, Morgan Riley. I moved him up a little bit from my uh, official stats-based list just because, you know, great start to this season, and it it seems like his offensive uh, explosion is a bit more real than uh, just one year. Mm -hmm. Part of that's playing on that power play, but I've really liked his play without the puck as well. I think Mike Babcock has done a great job developing Morgan Riley. The only hesitation I have with moving him further up the list, uh, which I'm sure... You know, Maple Leafs might be angry at him being outside the top 15 is I, I just wonder how much of his actual offensive production is because he plays on that power play and with those great players and how much of it is actually, you know, Morgan Riley doing the work. And I, I just have questions about that at this point. I feel like eventually the data will let us know. But right at this moment, Riley's in this this range for me below 15. Yeah. I think uh, that's all well said. Let's keep going. Let's keep going with your list. 
Enough. All right. I feel like uh, Morgan Riley gets enough coverage on other shows. Really? You think the Maple Leafs get enough coverage? Uh, a little amount. A little amount, yeah. Fair bit. <laughs> All right. Uh, next on my list is uh, Dustin Bufflin at 16, mm-hmm. who, you know, he's starting to age a little bit, I would say, but the aren't, man's still a monster. Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, Bufflin is he's menacing, man. When he's on his game, I, I know he's kind of seen as a slow defenseman, and that, that can be true um, agility-wise. You know, he's not the fastest turner. He's a bit of a boat. But uh, in straight lines, he can he can build up speed if you give him a little bit of space. And, you know, he, he can create a lot of offense off the rush, actually, because once he gets going, you're not going to stop him. You know, he'll just plow right through you. You could try to check him, but you might die. And uh, he also happens to be uh, the best puck battler in the entire NHL. You, you, he's just too strong. You know, you can't beat him for a loose puck. It, it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I just find him endlessly entertaining because he can play whatever way you want. Uh, he can play that, like, grinded out physical game and just punish you. He can, you know, pinch into the high slot and take a slapper out of nowhere that no one was expecting. He, he's just a smart player, and he's he, he's kind of a, a throwback, you know? Like, he, he could play in any era and be a dominant player, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I love him. I have him in my top 20. I, I understand that, uh, you know, sometimes he can uh, be... I don't know, not necessarily careless, but like he can sometimes try to force the puck into uh, areas that maybe he'd be better served making a more rat and suitor type conservative pass. But I mean, that's part of what what makes him special is he makes some of those stretch passes that other guys simply don't have the vision or the desire to pull off. And yeah, when he's uh, when he's going on his game, like we saw in the last postseason, he's uh, he's one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, just some of the stuff he's capable of pulling off physically is is remarkable. And, um, yeah, he is, I don't know how much longer his shelf life is in terms of being on this list and being at this level, but, uh, for now he's still there and he's still an integral part of a Jets team and a Jets blue line that we consider to be, uh, very, very high up there. So, um, yeah, he deserves to be on this list. Yeah. I think the one thing with Bufflin that, you know, can be concerning at times is he's an extremely aggressive defender without the puck. So like, he's always going to try to take it away from a player. He's not going to just play positionally. And because of that lack of agility, if he misses his check, you know, he's kind of out of it. And then you're running around your entire shift trying to cover for him. So, so that's the main thing with me for Buffalo and like, like the, the drawback and what, what keeps him out of being like a top 10 defenseman is, uh, he, he can get himself into trouble with uh, his aggressiveness. Yeah. No, I agree. But, I mean, ultimately, um, it's sort of uh, what you create versus what you give up with that. And he obviously creates a bit more uh, or yeah. a lot more for his team, right? So it's uh, I understand why people are sometimes, um, you know, scared off by guys who said sometimes make those mistakes or, or stuff that seems like it could be preventable. But at the end of the day, like if you're creating a lot more over the long haul with some of that aggressiveness, then I'll take that on my team any day, even if it's going to result in some bad goals against. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Keep, All uh, right. So next on my list is Jeff Petrie. What number is, is this? This is 15. Okay. So I, I moved him slightly down from where I had him just based on the data. Um, not for any reason other than I like a couple guys a little bit more. But uh, Petrie, I think, has really been shown to be a, a dominant first-pairing defenseman ever since Shea Weber started getting injured here. I know a lot of people get focused on plus-minus, but I don't really care about that. Um, 
if you look at the minutes that he's playing, especially with the partners that he's had to play with, you know, carrying guys like Carl Olsner around for a full season, he's just been incredible. And he's uh, unlocked some offensive uh, potential as well. I don't want to say potential, but he's unlocked his offensive ability in having to cover for that first power play unit, they haven't been that good this year. I, they haven't really figured out a, a smart setup uh, with Galchenyuk gone. But uh, last season, when they had that Galchenyuk, Drew, and Petrie uh, essentially kind of like an umbrella where they were going for uh, either Galchenyuk or Petrie's shot, they were actually incredible. Uh, it was like the one bright spot for the Canadians last year. And uh, I really like Jeff Petrie. I think he's a great uh, transition defenseman, much better defensively than people give him credit for, especially on the penalty kill. Uh, the one area that consistently makes people underrate him is uh, one-on-one. He can get beat a lot. Uh, it's not the only thing in the NHL for defense. Uh, there's lots of different plays that aren't one-on-one. But uh, when he's defending one-on-one, he uh, tends to get walked a fair amount. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, like if you are a top defenseman playing against the other team's best players, that's probably going to happen. Uh, a couple yeah. of times, it's kind of like with with basketball. Well, it's like if a center gets dunked on, it's like, well, if you you know, if you keep uh, if you keep trying to block shots, eventually uh, you will wind up on a poster, and it happens. But I think. Uh, like Petrie just missed my list. He was on the cusp there on the honorable mentions. I'm I'm a big fan of his game. He's incredibly smooth. I wonder like there's certain guys like him that for whatever reason just to seem to inspire a very irrational amount of hatred and angst amongst fans. Like I don't know, like I feel like I see people rag on Jeff Petrie and criticize whenever people praise him. There's like such weird push pushback and vitriol for a player that's as good as he is. Like I don't know what what cause like what causes that? Is it is the start of his career in Edmonton, or I, I don't know? Like I feel like it even dates back to then because obviously the Oilers gave up on him for uh, a ridiculously low price. I think it's as simple as you know he winds up on the highlight reels for 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 getting walked. Like mm. he he just has a propensity that like when he does make a mistake, he looks really bad. Uh, it's similar to the same thing that happens with, you know, P.K. Subban, you know, like he makes so many daring plays that like sometimes he'll take a puck behind the net and try to pass it up the middle right to an opponent in the slot and it'll end up in the back of his net. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's on the broadcast 50 times over the next week. And that's what people remember. Right. So I think that same kind of thing happens with Petrie. Um not necessarily to a greater extent, but because he's less known as, you know, an offensive driver, people are more prone to remembering those defensive gaffes, even though like he is a stalwart defensive player Mm. overall, you know, like in zone defense, he's fantastic uh, defending off the rush, like at the blue line, really, really good. But he does tend to get lit up a little bit in like the low slot area. He's kind of like the opposite of Shea Weber where like his shot suppression, fantastic, uh, really good at defending the high slot, uh, keeping those shots down. So like sniper players who like to hang out in the high slot, like the Tarasenko's and those guys don't necessarily punish Petrie unless they're Mm one-on-one like in zone defense. He's good at defending those players, but guys who get really into the low slot, like, you know, your Brad Marchands, your it's on the same team, but your Brennan Gallagher's your, your Victor Arvidsons, those guys can score against Petrie a lot. So th- those, I think those chances in front of the net where you're a defenseman and you're 
you know, not knocking a guy out of the crease. You're not crease clearing. For some reason, a lot of fans get really frustrated with those kinds of plays. And that tends to be what he ends up on uh, highlights for defensively. Do you think uh, Brendan Gallagher is just feasting on him in practice? Just scoring every time out there? I mean, I don't he's know. scoring on everyone <laughs> in the NHL anyways during these games. So, uh, I'm yeah, sure I mean. It's possible. Uh, I think right now the main thing that I've seen uh, from practice is Gallagher and Domi having like face-off battles hmm. to try to get Domi to to win more face-offs in games, and Gallagher's just beating him embarrassingly and then like publishing it on Instagram. So that's pretty funny. I, I, feel I, like, I don't know how much they aggressively play scrimmages, though. I feel like uh, Jeff Petrie gets held back also by having kind of an uninspiring name. Like I feel like if he had a like an exotic, like if he was like Johan. Pet Pedersen or something. I feel like uh, people would be much more excited about him as a player. I don't know. I don't know why. I just feel like, uh, like not like you know, we're gonna get into like Ryan Ellis. I don't think Ryan Ellis has a particularly exotic, sexy name by any means. But I feel like uh, Jeff Petrie, for whatever reason, like as soon as people hear that, they just kind of check out. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. It's kind of the same thing with like Sh- uh, Shane Gostisbehere and Ivan Provorov, right? Like yeah. they're excellent, but at the same time, they have super cool names yeah. also. So they're like really eye grabbing. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the same thing as Craig Smith in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. We're like nobody cares about Craig Smith because his name is Craig Smith, but he's really good. Yeah, you know, really underrated player. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's partially the name thing. Man, that uh, yeah, that new Habs defenseman Johan Pedersen, he's been killing it this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's keep going. We're inside your top fifteen. This is exciting. We're moving. All right, uh, my next one is Chris Letang. Yep, also on my list. Um, I actually would have had him. I considered him for my top ten. I think I know he played seventy nine games last year, but it felt like he was, um, you know, hampered by injury, even though he was playing through it. And obviously, he's missed a ton of time uh, over the past couple of years. So. You know, that consistency and durability is obviously something once we kind of have to nitpick at the top of this list with the best defenseman in the world that is going to come into play a bit more. But it seems like he's, I know he just missed the game recently, but it seems like he's pretty healthy this year and he's been playing really well and which is obviously great to see. And he's arguably like one of the most important players in the league just in terms of uh, what is behind him at that position and sort of uh, what he needs, like how much he needs to do when he's playing at the top of his game for that Penguins team. So uh, hopefully he can stay in the lineup and stay healthy and put together a, a complete season because obviously that uh, the skill set of his when he's out there is is incredibly fun to watch and super effective. Yeah, another guy who's pretty underrated defensively as well. Um, another guy who ends up on the wrong side of highlight reels a lot, you know, partially because he's playing against great players and partially because, you know, he's trying to accomplish something all the time. Uh, he's not just a guy who's going to bang it off the glass and out. And sometimes the goals that happen are, you know, highlight reels instead of the ugly ones that happen because of uh, boring mistakes. You know, he makes the big mistakes and. Uh, I think that's a kind of mental block that we have to try to get past with with uh, players. Well, we'll call it Jake Gardner disease. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, I think the main thing with Latang that holds him back a little bit for me is I think his offensive numbers are a wee bit inflated from playing his whole career with Malkin and Crosby. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and you know what? Last year, I remember he uh, like he's, his name surfaced in trade rumors at some point in the season, and uh, no surprise when you looked a bit deeper, like he was having a historically uh, unfortunate season from uh, his goalie stopping the puck when he was out on the ice. I don't know what it wound up at at the end of the year, but I remember like partway through the season, I mean, 
they were stopping like 85% of the shots or something with him on the ice. And obviously, uh, when that's happening, guys are going to look a lot worse defensively than they are just because they're constantly uh, racking up minuses and kind of being on these highlight reels with their with their heads heads down after being on the ice for a goal against. But um, I don't expect that to continue, and I don't think that's some sort of inherent flaw that he was driving himself, as, as we've seen over the years. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, with the point totals and especially the power play production, um, he has a pretty cushy gig in terms of just give give the puck over to uh, Crosby and Malkin and get out of the way and get that secondary assist. But he also, uh, especially a 5-on-5 with his puck moving and his transition play, creates a ton for them as well, especially with how fast they want to play and what makes them uh, tick at 5-on-5. I, I feel like uh, he's incredibly important, especially when you look at, like, who's behind him. And now now with Justin Schultz out, I mean, there's just way too much Oli Mata and... and um, Jamie Oleksiak on that team, and and they really need Chris Letang to shoulder a heavy workload for them to be effective. Yeah, I feel like you know he really benefited from them acquiring Jack Johnson. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't even I couldn't even keep that uh, throw that sentence. Yeah, okay, um, I'm gonna let that one go. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's keep going. So we, uh, Letang was 14 for you. Uh, give me give me give me 13, 12, and 11, and then we're gonna take okay. a break at top ten. Uh, 13, 12, and 11, I've got two Ducks in uh, Hampus Lindholm and Cam Fowler. And then I've got uh, the top guy in St. Louis and Petrangelo. Okay, so I had Hampus Lindholm inside my top 10. Um, I had Alex Petrangelo here in the teens. And Cam Fowler, I was excited to talk about this with you because he's he's the type of player that I love watching play. And like that skill set of his... um, especially uh, was it two years ago when they made the Western Conference final like he was playing at such a high level and then obviously he got what I thought was uh was a bit too pricey of an extension I, I would have possibly tried to trade him based on how their uh, roster was constructed at the time but I don't have him in my top 20 and I remember when I read your Sportsnet piece I was a bit blown away by how high you had him and it makes sense with with the transition data and, and I'm sure his individual uh totals are all through the through the roof but I don't know. I uh, I have him as like I think he's pretty clearly the third best defenseman on that team for me. Um, but yeah, you, you clearly obviously aren't as high on jo- as Josh Manson as I am, and you uh, you seem to love yourself a little, Cam Fowler. Yeah, Fowler for whatever reason, um, his dominance doesn't really show up in the on ice data for in, in a lot of different ways. Um, some of the stuff that I have in terms of like. Uh, high danger chances and uh, you know pass to the slot on ice data that kind of stuff he shows up in well but in, in the public data he doesn't show up as a, a dominant player by any stretch even though he's you know passes the eye test pretty well with flying colors um, he, I just really like his ability to move the puck uh, he's a, actually a really good defensive player as well Um for whatever reason, he's been stuck with pretty poor partners through most of his career. You know, uh, spent a lot of time with old Kevin Bieksa, mm-hmm. which doesn't help things. But he's just a player that, for whatever reason, the individual data is incredible and the on-ice data is not so great. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Like, when you watch him play, obviously, like, he's one of the best skaters in the league and uh, he can really move the puck. It's... I mean, this year it's it's interesting because they split up that Manson Lindholm pairing, and um, I believe Manson's been playing mostly with Fowler, and it's been uh, Lindholm and Montour, and both pairings have been caved in, and I, I don't know what's going on there with uh, 
with Carlisle and, and, and the Ducks, it seems like whatever they try to do isn't working at this point. But yeah, you're right. I mean, he's he kind of got lost in the shuffle with uh, with the defense pairings in the past, and he's gotten to play with Manson this year, and it hasn't really worked out, but it hasn't worked out for anyone in Anaheim, so I'm not going to ding him too much for that. But I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, you clearly have, uh, you have access to numbers that um, paint him in a more favorable light than uh, the stuff we do have publicly, that's for sure. Yeah, and the Ducks are such a weird team now. Yeah. Like, it, it seemed like you know last year they were a bit of a team that was behind the eight ball in terms of like where the NHL was going, but they were still halfway decent at least. You know, like there are certain things that uh, Carlisle does. Like, <laughs> not to make fun of our friend Mike Kelly, but his old tweet about like the things that Colorado does gives them a great PDO. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that Anaheim did the last couple of years under Carlisle did reduce shot quality against, even though their, you know, uh, shot uh, differential was not very good. Uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why I kind of doubted John Gibson a little bit last year. Like I had him within my top 10 goalies, but um I didn't have him as high in terms of like goals saved above average as a lot of people did. So part of the reason for that is because the Ducks were actually very good at limiting shot quality against. This year, that's completely disappeared. Uh, I don't know if it's injury problems that they've had or just that teams have exposed their system to a ridiculous degree. But Gibson has been heroic. And if he hadn't been arguably the best player in the entire NHL in October... Uh, I don't think the Ducks would have won a single game. That like they've been incredibly bad, and I, I don't even know what the problem is because, frankly, I don't you know make appointments viewing for the Anaheim Ducks the last few years because they're kind of a boring team to watch outside of like the individual performances because of the system that they play. Yeah, yeah, and obviously you know they've had injuries and they've had to rely on upon some younger players that are probably in over their heads, but like they've been bad to the level where it's like that's quits being an excuse, and there's something. Uh, deeper rooted and uh, like fatally flawed with that team because some of these numbers they're putting up are just uh, are jaw droppingly bad. Um, Petrangelo quickly. Uh, I feel like he's dropped the ball a little bit here because I feel like this was a great year for him to sneak in and win a Norris as sort of, Oh, this is Alex Petrangelo's year, but the blues have been so shaky to start the year and he hasn't been great himself. And he certainly hasn't been putting up the counting numbers. So, you know, it's early on, but, uh, I, for whatever reason, the preseason, I kept looking back at him on the Norris odds and being like, I feel like this could be a year that people just randomly mount a massive case for Alex Petrangelo to get rewarded for the career he's had so far. Well, I think the beginning of last year was going to be that year, too. Like, I remember there was some buzz around him for the Norris, and I, I don't know if it was necessarily deserved or not. I think he had a decent start, but not like, you know, career defining. But yeah, you, you'd think that he's, if not next in line, right there with... Uh, Ekman Larson mm -hmm. and uh, John Klingberg, uh, Klingberg as uh, the guys who are due for a Norris. But I think Klingberg is obviously the guy who's most likely to get it just because his his performance level is so high. So score like 60 goals this year? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> shoot 20% the whole year. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I've been kind of disappointed with his start, but that's the whole of St. Louis. I think Petrangelo is still the same player, a dominant transition player, Halfway decent defensively, uh, but not 
amazing, uh, partially because of his penalty killing. I think the one thing that stands out to Petrangelo stands out about Petrangelo for me that is very confusing is at five on five, I think he's probably a top 10 defenseman in the league, but on special teams for years now, like the sample size is obviously not the same as five on five, but it's starting to get pretty large. He's really bad. Like mm-hmm. he's one of the worst penalty killers in the league among the top defensemen. And uh, he, he's not so great on the power play either. So I don't, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I, I asked a question this summer of, of blue fans. Like, what do you think of Petrangelo on the PK? And, the the responses were like pretty uniformly positive, and they were blaming uh, Bomeister for, you know, any problems that he had. But Bomeister's actually like halfway decent on the PK, and when he's been away from Petrangelo on the PK, he's been quite good. Right. Uh, not to say that Bomeister is a great defenseman or anything; he's fallen off quite severely, yeah. especially five on five. Mm-hmm. But uh, Petrangelo's special teams are like oddly bad. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Like... Trangelo is an interesting case because I think the individual talent is there, but some of his, I'm talking about five and five. Some of his numbers definitely um, get impacted by his usage, and also like I, Jay Bomeister at this point of his career, he had a great, great career, but uh, it might be time to consider hanging them up soon. I think he is incredibly washed up, and it's shocking to me that he's still getting the types of minutes that he is on that team, and it's pretty much entirely based on uh, name brand value as opposed to actual performance. So freeing Petrangelo up from that and giving him a partner who could actually um, hold up his end of the bargain would help quite a bit. But yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating case. Cause I feel like, you know, he, with the, the team Canada connections and the way people talk about him sometimes in the mainstream media, um, like we're both clearly uh, high on him as well. He's in our top 15, but like, I think, some people would tell you that he's like a top five defenseman or definitely top 10. And I just don't, I'm not comfortable having him that high on my list. Um, and I, I'm not sure what the discrepancy in there is. It just seems like he's just, he's like the opposite of Jeff Petrie where people just love talking about Alex Petrangelo. Yeah. He, he's definitely a song good player. And I remember, you know, like the fact that he's like a, a guaranteed lock for team Canada. Whereas guys like, you know, PK Subban and Chris Letang are like, really questionable when you know i think Latang is very close to him in, in impact and uh you know maybe a little bit less impressive defensively but overall their impacts are about the same and you know i think pk suvan is significantly better than petrangelo in a lot of aspects so it, it's really odd how much he's loved but i guess he's like a staple team canada guy his whole life right it's kind of like he's he's in a lot of ways the jay bomeister of his generation where he's good <laughs> but he's not quite as good as his perception i would say jay bomeister was never as good as petrangelo though yeah uh, I, I think your point about him being you know falling off the cliff i had jay bomeister rated 153rd among the defensemen that i rated uh over the last three years and just to give you a clue of how bad that is, he's below Cody Cece. Yeah, that's really bad. He's uh, yeah, I have him 153rd as well. Uh, I only ranked 100. <laughs> I only ranked 152 guys though. Um, but JB oh, Wister missed the cut gosh. on my JB Wister missed the cut on my top 152. Um, <laughs> yeah, Alex Petrangelo. Um, I was gonna make uh, some. I, I was gonna make another comment there, but I forgot what it was. Anyways, let's uh, let's take a quick break here, and then we're gonna get into we're gonna get into the top 10, right? Yep. Okay. Um, quick break here, and we'll do Andrew Berkshire's top 10. I know it's technically a little break in the show here, but here on the Hockeypedia cast, we never stop with the analytics, and that's why I've got another number for you. 
66% of men lose their hair by age 35, which is a stat that I was actually blown away with because it seems like that is a lot younger than you would have thought, which I guess um, is something that listeners of the show are pretty familiar with considering how often we talk about aging curves and the fact that players typically peak at a much younger age than we would have thought otherwise and this is no different and the thing is when you start to notice hair loss it's too late because it's easier to keep the hair you have than it is to replace the hair you've lost so here's a potential solution for you out there forhams.com a one-stop shop for hair loss skincare and other wellness supplements for men hams is going to connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss with well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. These are prescription solutions backed by science. You don't have to go through uh, that awkward waiting room experience where you're waiting for um, the in-person doctor visit. You can save yourself countless hours by simply going online at 4 and answering a few quick questions. The doctor is going to review it and prescribe you and then the products are shipped directly to your door and it's really that simple. So to get in on this, in order now, uh, my listeners will actually get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now while supplies last. Go to their website for full details. But I can guarantee you that this would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. And with this deal, you're going to get it for just 5 bucks. So to get in on this, go to 4 slash PDO. That's 4 slash PDO. 4 slash PDO. Now let's get back to the show. All right. Let's um let's get in this. I'm really fascinated by this because I still have like f- 14 names that we haven't talked about. Oh wow. But we're in your top 10. So this is going to be exciting. I'm now nervous about who I've left out. <laughs> um okay, let's uh let's let's start rattling them off. Give me a uh, give okay. me a top 10 now. Uh you want me to do the whole top 10? Uh, don't do the hot. Let's do like uh, give me a couple names. Okay, so I'm going to go 10 to 8. I right, have uh, at number 10, Roman Yossi, then number 9, Brent Burns, then number 8, Ekman Larson. Uh, the biggest riser for me is Ekman Larson. I, I thought he was phenomenal last year. I, I think now that there's a little bit more Arizona, I'm going to see that uh, he's not just the guy to staunch the bleeding. Yep. He's actually creating some stuff, too. Yeah, it was such a mess there for so long it's, it, that it becomes really tough to evaluate players. And I feel like especially with uh, with a skilled puck mover like Ekman Larson, um, quality of teammates comes into play just because I feel like a lot was being left on the ice because the guys he was passing to or attempting to pass to weren't nearly as gifted and both in terms of physically but also in terms of thinking the game as him. So I feel like, uh, you know, he wasn't able to really optimize his skill set. And, you know, for years there, his partners were, he, I think he went from Zabenic McCulloch to, at the end of his career, to Luke Shen, to Michael Stone, to, uh, I don't even know who else, Connor Murphy. And now, last year and this year, he seems to have struck a really nice partnership with Jason Demers. And I'm not surprised to see that his numbers have gone up as a result. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting to see, uh, what he can get to, because I, I think he's a bit of a dark horse for the Norris if Arizona can kind of get over their uh, PDO hell of the first you know month of the season. And uh, I think that's, you know, if Alex Galchenyuk can be as good of a center as I think he can be, which, you know, that ship may have sailed over the last couple of years. I think there's been some serious damage to his career prospects by the way that he was was playing and uh, a couple injuries that he suffered. But, you know, if they can get the best out of him, I think Arizona's like 
a borderline playoff team. Is that like a crazy hot take? I think anti Ranta is also like an incredible difference maker for them if he can stay healthy all year. Oh, absolutely. There's obviously a bunch of stuff that needs to fall into place, but what we've seen with that Pacific division, there's no reason to believe they, uh, at this point, can sneak in there. Obviously, they, they started off the year really snake bitten at 5 on 5. I believe it took them like a handful of games to score their first 5 on 5 goal as a team, but they've really turned it on lately. And that drubbing they had of Tampa Bay the other day was incredibly impressive. Yeah, it, it, even with the, you know, I think Hedman's out, but even with injuries, Tampa Bay is a, a really tough team to do that to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can learn less about any like what what am i trying to say here uh blowouts probably tell you less about your team than any other kind of game for sure but at the same time being capable of doing that against a team like tampa bay it it says that there's more talent there than there has been in recent years Uh, i'm excited to see what arizona can implement as the season goes on because if they can actually get a little bit of puck luck going their way it's uh it's an interesting team. They've got some depth there. They've got some players who are a little bit underrated. I, I like some of the things that John Shake has done in, in acquiring certain players that teams kind of undervalued over the last couple of years. Yeah, no, they uh, things are coming together there in Arizona. I'm excited to watch uh, how it unfolds. Um, so you mentioned Roman Yossi. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's on my top 20. I had him in my teens, but I actually have, uh, like I obviously have PKC Ben ahead of him in terms of teammates. I also have Ryan Ellis ahead of him. Mm. Yeah, Ryan Ellis for some reason did not rate as well for me. Uh, he he had a great season last year when he came back from injury. Right. Uh, I think honestly down the stretch he was their best defenseman, and then in the playoffs he just like he was awful, mm-hmm. like really really awful. Yeah. So I it, it's I think the main problem that I have with Ryan Ellis is that he can fluctuate so wildly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe part of the problem there is he's not the best fit with Roman Yossi because it's tough for a guy like him to be the shutdown guy. He can play it well at times, but then he kind of falls off a little bit, gets exhausted. And Roman Yossi demands a lot of his partner defensively because he takes a lot of risks. I, where, where I'm curious, I forget, when we were ranking our uh, top wingers, where did you have Roman Yossi on your list? <laughs> on the top wingers like number five number five <laughs> um no i uh I, I love both those guys and they're such an interesting pairing just based on their uh, individual skill sets and sort of um i guess yeah what what ryan ellis has to do to uh to compensate for uh roman yossi's end-to-end rushes at times and being out of position but they're obviously both of them are very effective together and i, I do like that compliment and i don't know i just have this soft spot in my game for ryan ellis i feel like when people talk about uh, all those blue liners in Nashville, obviously, uh, you know, Yossi and, and Subban get most of the love. And then I feel like Matthias Ekholm gets a lot of like, one of the best names you've never heard of before, never really talked yeah. about is is Matthias Ekholm. But Ryan Ellis, just for whatever reason, gets lost up in that, lost in that shuffle a little bit. And I think he's a, he's a heck of a player who does like a little bit of everything well. And he's also one of those guys that I feel like, uh, similar to what we were talking about with, with Ekholm, if he was on a, a worse team with uh, with fewer guys around him at that position. He could potentially, you know, be putting up just ridiculous point totals if he was asked and to do so and had the opportunity to do so. And all of a sudden, people would be like, "Holy shit, Ryan Ellis is so good." Um, but I'm sure he's enjoying his life right now, playing with Roman Yossi on a ridiculous second pairing. Yeah, he's got to be since he signed that big contract yeah. with a quite a severe discount, right? Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah, I, I really like Ryan Ellis. I think you're right that he does kind of get ignored a little bit. I mean, even when you think about like his, the biggest moment of his career was probably that Jordan Everly tying goal against Russia in the World Juniors. And everyone talks about Jordan Everly and everyone talks about uh, John Tavares on that play. But Ryan Ellis is the guy who held the puck at the blue line and actually made that happen, right? Mm-hmm. And no one really remembers that for whatever reason. He made a fantastic play. Hold, I think he held the puck in with his skate at the blue line and controlled it and sent it down to Tavares. So, yeah, he, he does kind of get ignored a little bit. I, I like Ryan Ellis a lot. But mm-hmm. uh, Roman Yossi, the reason why I had him so high, um, it's all down to his offense and transition game. He's one of the best in the league at both, and it – somehow compensates for him being really porous defensively. Uh, he just He's not very good at uh, you know covering his defensive warts in terms of like in-zone defense, but once he actually gets the puck, he gets it out of the zone, and that makes a big impact on actual goals against. So it, it actually works out, despite the fact that uh, he, he struggles defending off the rush. He struggles defending in-zone, but... Yeah, he's, he's, a, just, I mean, he's just good. He's, he's a good one, at a skater. He's a one-man fast break, and uh, yes. he can single-handedly flip the ice, and that's always an incredibly valuable player. So, no, you're right. He's uh, he's worthy of being on this list. Um, so we're inside your uh, – are we getting we're in your top ten? Yes, we are. We, okay, yeah. yeah. So, so, sorry, yeah. We're, so Yossi was eight, I believe? Uh, Yossi was ten. Yossi was ten. Okay. So, um, so let's keep Nine going. Nine is Brent Burns. Mm. Yeah, and he, he's a guy that I moved down. I, he's a really weird player because it, actually without the puck, he's fantastic. He's a really aggressive defender. He's good positionally, and he wins battles like crazy because he's just, you know, a bear. But uh, when he has the puck on his stick outside the offensive zone, he is one of the riskiest players in the entire league. Uh, he's always trying to make something happen, which I approve of, but he is a massive turnover machine. A uh, huge amount of, you know, uh, counterattack chances happen with Brent Burns on the ice. And I think that's a big reason why uh, San Jose has kind of used him in a role where Vlasic has taken all of the tough minutes and just been caved in. And Burns just feasted on uh, the lower end of lineups because it, it's a rough go for him <laughs> moving the puck uh, a lot of the time. Yes, it is. He can be uh, for as talented as he is and skilled with a puck. I I do think he can, uh, and I don't toss this around lightly because I feel like um, people sometimes use this term and it's not doesn't really apply. But I feel like he can be sloppy with a puck sometimes, and yes. it just it's, it comes off as I don't want to say he's lazy, but it just comes off as maybe just because of the way he does it. But it it comes off as kind of like just yeah like lazy careless like someone's just flicking the puck into spaces where it's very clearly and easily picked off and you're like what why did he do that and it was so unnecessary and obviously the good outweighs the bad with him but he clearly has some warts in his game i had him i had him ninth on my list so i'm right there with you and you know in the past i would cite stuff like his ridiculous shot generation numbers as a positive and you know, individually, that that's great for him. But I, I've really come around on the idea that like I don't want my defensemen shooting the puck a lot unless yeah. they are. You know, I mean, you're even seeing it with Dougie Hamilton this year, where he's just generating a ton of shots and none of them are going in. It's it's really tough to score goals from that distance, and I feel like um, 
it's not, I mean, a lot can happen with rebounds and deflections and, you know, the goalie just missing the puck. So it's never a terrible idea to fire the puck on net. But I do view it as sometimes it can be kind of a unnecessary loss of possession. And um, I think sometimes we can overrate defensemen who get a lot of shots on goal. And uh, with him, his numbers have been so shocking in the past couple of years. And he's been relied upon to do so much of that for that team. But I, uh, I'm i not digging, digging him for it, but it used to be a massive uh you know, in the positive column for me for defenseman, and now I've really changed my tune on that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there. The the shot generation numbers at a certain point it becomes like a bit of a I, I don't want to say a bad thing because getting a shot on net is always worth it, not just for the chance of scoring on that particular shot, but you know, like you said, generating rebounds and possibly deflections and, you know, increasing offensive zone pressure, getting the puck closer to the net, you know, at least, or generating an offensive zone faceoff where things can happen. But it's definitely a situation where you're relying on that far too much for my liking. Uh, I, I think the Sharks would be a better team if uh, Burns passed a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I'll, I'll be a little bit more charitable as well on his turnovers. I think that he's just really really aggressive and constantly trying to make things happen and it's like his one focus in life is getting the puck to the net (laughs) to the opponent's net and sometimes he just like thinks too far ahead you know like he's trying to play 3d chess when he needs to keep it a little bit simpler as much as you know i usually crap on people who try to keep the game simple uh he needs to simplify his game a little bit to be at his best yep no, I, I agree with that. I actually had a. I know you got into this with people when you posted your written list, and he wasn't on your top twenty. I actually do have Mark Mark Edward Vlasic in the teens for me on uh, the back half of the you know fifteen to twenty range. But he's a, he's obviously uh, a super polarizing or tricky player to evaluate here, just because his numbers obviously aren't great by any means, but some of his usage and sort of what he's freed up uh, a guy like Ben Burns to do in the past is worth noting in my opinion and i think one of the craziest stats going uh in the league right now is i believe it's been like a hundred plus games since mark edward vlasic took a penalty which considering who he plays against and the fact that he's not he's not like you know one of those guys where you're like oh well part of that is because he's playing matador defense and he's just you know letting guys go by him like he plays physical and he gets in people's space and he plays against the other team's best guys i mean he's like whenever they play the edmonton oilers he's glued to or or as much as glued to Connor mcdavid's hip as any human being can be and the fact that he other than delay of game penalties that he hasn't taken any you know tripping or hooking or interference or any sort of obstruction calls is just mind-blowing to me and i hope that's a streak that just continues forever because it's it's crazy yeah I, i have a lot of respect for guys who are very aggressive defenders and don't take a lot of penalties i think that's something that i mentioned a a couple times in the wingers podcast about guys like mark stone yeah uh you know the more you entangle yourself with opposing players, the more likely you are just to even not necessarily be undisciplined, but just take an accidental penalty, you know, like you're poking for a puck and you get it between a guy's skates and they do the old, uh, hit the back skate on the stick and fall over it it happens so the way the fact that Vlasic has kept those penalties down is really impressive uh the reason why he doesn't make it for me is he's kind of a one-dimensional defenseman at this point Mm -hmm. and I I think I like him a lot and I think that he is you know a, a top defenseman in the league in terms of like you know 
he's in my top 60 kind of thing. He's a top, or I guess top 62 now with Vegas in the league. So mm-hmm. he, he's a top pairing defenseman. But to be in this top, top range where, you know, you're among the league's elite, I think you need to be a better transition player than Velasquez is or a better offensive player where he really only dominates in the defensive end. And I, I think you have to give him credit for freeing up Burns for sure. But at a certain point, if even if you're playing, you know, the toughest competition in the league, which uh, I think Velasquez does play, if not the toughest minutes, like top five toughest minutes overall by the calculations that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't get totally caved in, yeah. you know, like if you're a great, great defenseman, even in the, t- the toughest of minutes, I, I want to see you be close to even, you know what I mean? Uh, if if you're going to be in the top 20 and it's kind of the same thing with, uh, with Nick Jalmerson where like he has a great defensive impact, but outside of that, he doesn't do enough for, for it to be a top defenseman for me. You know, the good news for you is I believe, uh, this year with, with Vlasic and Carlson on the ice, the Sharks are controlling like 65% of the shot attempts or something. So, yeah, so he'll probably move fair about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's keep going here. So let's, uh, let's hammer out some of these reigning names. All right, so we'll we'll do another uh, group here. I've got. Uh, well, let's just do them all. Okay, because okay. you have like we'll seven names that. left or something, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, at number seven, I've got Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, six is Klingberg. Five is Hedman. Four Giordano. Three Subban. Two Doughty, and one Carlson. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, I had the same top three. I had Carlson, Subban, Doughty. One, two, three. Um, I had Seth Jones at four. Uh, I'm really high on Seth Jones. We can talk, but I mean, we've talked about him and uh, and Wierenski quite a bit so far. But then sure. I had uh, I had Hedman, Klingberg, and then I had uh, the Hampus Lindholm, Jacob Slavin back to back, and Mark Giordano, as you mentioned, was uh, was in the back half of my top ten. But uh, yeah, so we're 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 pretty much on the same page there. Um, I don't know which of the names that we mentioned there are are most interesting to you. Uh, I think. You know, I moved up Hedman a lot on this list mm. than I had on uh, my, my actual database list. Yeah, he was on your teens, I believe, right? Yeah, because he won the Norris last year, but he did not have a good season. Uh, I know it's a controversial take, but outside of the power play where, you know, he was great with uh, Kucherov and Stamkos, 5-on-5, uh, five five, he was not very good. Um, he had career lows in a lot of different categories. Uh He's an aggressive defender, but he got caught a lot last year. Um, I, I just I, he's his Norris win of the ones that have been awarded for like being due. Uh, I think was probably the worst. Mm. Uh, I would have been more happy with uh, Hedman winning Norris any of the last three years before last year uh, compared to last year. I, I just I don't know what got into voters last year outside of looking at points and uh, power play numbers because. Uh, Hedman just he, he he struggled last year in a lot of ways that he doesn't usually. Now I I don't think that's something that's bound to continue. I think he just had an, an off year and uh, killed it on the power play, but he was not impressive to me last year at all. Um, yeah, I guess the one uh, nuance or counterpoint that I'd make, and you know, I'm not sure how much of an excuse this is because when you're talking about the Norris Trophy and you know, top five defensemen in the world. Like in theory, you should be able to lift anyone you play with, but he did play an inordinate amount of time with Dan Girardi last year, which I feel yes. like needs to be mentioned in the case, but you're right. I mean, it was, 
based on his lofty standards, uh, a bit of a step down. I feel like people just wanted to reward the, the Lightning for the ridiculous season they had. And, um, you know, he put up a ton of points and he's had a great career to date and missed out on this award in the past. So, um, I don't have like too much issue with it. He wasn't, he wasn't my number one choice by any means, but I think, um, like he's a, he's obviously a, a great player and I'm not sure how much of that was Girardi and how much of that was just weird and explicable one year struggles. And I'm sure he's not on the other end of it. Like he's going to be continue being up there in that conversation. The one thing I do enjoy watching about him most, and he does so much well, but I feel like, uh, He's he's my favorite player to watch in uh, in transition plays when he doesn't have the puck. Like I feel like he has such a great sense for being the the trailer on plays and jumping into mm-hmm. it in the right time. And that's just like a random anecdote and observation. There's you know there's no uh, analytical basis to it by any means. But just in terms of like when that lightning team gets going in, in transition and when he's jumping in on the play and being like. You know, it's it's a three on two and he makes it a four on two or something like that and he gets in there. Like he's just my favorite defenseman to watch in that regard. So um I have a I have a soft spot for Hedman and I he was yeah, I guess he was fifth on my list. So um I was a bit surprised when you did your written when you did your written portion that he was in the teens, but I'm glad to see that he's uh he's bounced back a little bit here on your list. Yeah, I mean it's the difference between going strictly by data and adhering to the formula or whatever you want to call it, like the the outline that I've created mm-hmm. and, you know, my actual personal view of the player. Like, I don't think last year was indicative at all of Hedman's career arc or uh, actual performance. But, yeah, like you said, it, it's tough to play with Dan Girardi, but at the same time, I know, like, uh, P.K. Subban played most of the year with uh, oh, Alexi Emelin. Yeah. You know, like, there are guys that have to carry the crappy player around a lot. Uh, Eric Carlson, you know, his whole well, career. Drew Doughty gets a lot of Derek Forbort. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah. I think Forbort's a little bit better than Girardi, though. Yeah, he is. And, but, I mean, I, I can't imagine that Derek Forbort would go to another team and all of a sudden start carrying his own pairing. No, that's true. Although, at the same time, you know, I thought the same thing of uh, McNabb. Yeah, he actually right. did pretty well in Vegas. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's a, a little bit of good home cooking in L.A. better than we think. But, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I think Hedman will be better this year. But, yeah, Dan Girardi is definitely the worst of those players that we've talked about uh, uh, having to carry. He's just – as bad as he was in New York, he's now even older and even slower. And mm. – I just don't get how they went that route the whole season. I get that, you know, like uh, Mikhail Sergachev is a very big defensive risk and you're nervous about putting him up in the minutes with Hedman. But I I just cannot imagine it being worse to have Sergachev with Hedman than Girardi. Like, I, I just can't. I, I don't believe that it's possible <laughs> that he would be worse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it would have been a much more exciting and interesting pairing to, to try that out. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, some of these names are pretty straightforward. We already kind of touched on them. Is there anyone? I mean, you obviously didn't have Slavin as high as I did. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know what else there is to say at this point in terms of like, I just, I, I think he's... Um, a tremendous player. I think that, you know, with guys like him and Hampus Lindholm, um, maybe I'm overrating a little bit. About I'm not sure, but I feel like it's really, really tough to actually be good at defending in your own zone. Like, I feel like guys that spend a lot of time 
uh, enter defensive zone and don't have the puck, it's you're generally kind of chasing the play and you're taking a ton of penalties and um, it's obviously not a very advisable, sustainable, uh, long-term approach uh, to defending. And with Slavin, like he's just he's so smooth and it seems like he never makes mistakes. And I just I don't know. I think he's so effective and. I'm not sure if the points will ever be there to get him in the Norris Trophy discussion, but he is kind of becoming uh, similar to what I was talking about with, with Matthias, Matthias at home. Like people now are like Jacob Slate whenever they talk about the Hurricanes, like Jacob Slavin is the best defenseman. No one's talking about. It's like everyone's talking about Jacob Slavin. He's awesome. Yeah, I feel like Slavin is well known enough now that I'm like the best defenseman. Nobody's talking about is Brett Pesci. Mm, yeah, you know, like uh, both of them are extraordinarily good without the puck. Yeah. And I think that's something that, uh, which is really tough to do traditionally has been valued, but is very hard to quantify for most people and has kind of been underrated the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, so those are guys that, you know, like Hampus Lindholm, they're, they're starting to stick out. And what I'll say about Hampus Lindholm, uh, one reason why, you know, he always ranks up here despite the, uh, low point totals is he's probably the best neutral zone defender in the NHL. Oh yeah. Uh, you just can't get a controlled entry against them very easily. Uh, it takes the most talented players to break through that. And, uh, you know, maybe I haven't checked the data on this year yet. It might not be as true this year because the ducks are so porous, but yeah, he's just fantastic at his own blue line. Uh, he's great in inside the zone as well, mm-hmm. but I think his biggest standout defensive quality is just that like you can't get an entry against him. It's really tough to do. And you know, the, the top three players in the league in that category are him, Subban, and Dowdy, which you know it, it tells you that that's something that you should value. I think mm-hmm. whenever you you always give like a bit of a sniff test to a statistic, and like some of it can be confirmation bias, obviously, but. If you have a statistic where the guys that you expect to be excellent are excellent at it, I, I think that's usually a good indication that it's a, a decent statistic. It's one of the things that uh, led me to value like loose puck recoveries and uh, you know pass blocks, where it's like, oh, if you look at uh, forwards for the last three years, who were the guys that consistently lead there? And it's like, oh, it's Patrice Bergeron, Patrice Bergeron, and Patrice Bergeron. Well, <laughs> I guess that's indicative. It's a good statistic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, that second round series between the Ducks and the Oilers last year, or two years ago, was my favorite thing to watch from it was that one on one battle with Lindholm and McDavid. And, you know, McDavid obviously, like against anyone else, is going to get the better of that matchup more times than not. But there were certain instances where McDavid would be coming through the neutral zone and it would just be one on one and Lindholm would be on an island by himself and he would like corral McDavid and either get the puck from him or push him into, you know, a less dangerous space on the ice up against the boards and i would just marvel at the fact that he was able to do that without taking the penalties and just the combination of the footwork and and the stick work is in my opinion the best in the game and yeah that's sort of that's sort of the nerdy stuff that i that i love to watch and lindholm does that as well as anyone so um i think at this point people listen to the show won't be surprised about the fact that we had him this high and sort of the discourse about him generally on on hockey twitter but um yeah he's like He's never going to be like a 50, 60 point guy by any means, but he's constantly going to be in this discussion for top 10 defensemen for a long time to come. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get out of here. We're at like the 90 minute mark and I feel like um, we've pretty much hit all the points. I feel like we wanted to hit on all the players. Is there anything else we left out? 
Uh, I don't think so. I, I don't think people need to, need us to tell them that you know Drew Doughty and Eric Carlson, and PK Subban are great. Yeah, the, uh, or I mean, those that's been the top three for the past couple of years. I feel like, right? And I haven't seen yeah, anything exactly. that's caused us to uh, change that belief. No, no, not at all. Do you think? Uh, do you think Seth Jones has the best um, the best likelihood of potentially cracking? that list or changing that uh pecking order in the in the years to come or like do you think someone else uh from this next generation has uh, a more likely upside i guess of achieving that goal i think it'll be jones or klingberg yeah i, I can see klingberg clawing his way in there i, I feel like he did last year mm-hmm. but uh you know never got the norris nomination that he probably should have like uh last year two out of the three players who were nominated for the norris were outside my top three uh I didn't have Subban in there either. I think I had him number five. So Klingberg would have been nominated for me. Uh, Doughty would have won. And I forget who else was in there, but I think Jones was like number four. So like th- those two guys are right there. They're knocking on the door. It, like it could be as soon as this year that they're in that conversation at the very least, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's, it's time that that uh, tier, that top tier of players gets broken up a little bit or, or, or added to. Uh, I'm excited to see that because. Yeah. You're right that it has been, I don't want to say stagnant, because it just means that those players are consistently excellent, right. but nobody's you know broken in there. I feel like Giordano was in that conversation, but is now probably a little bit further down just due to age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hedman's in that conversation, but uh, you know maybe just a, a tiny bit below the threshold there. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really excited to see what could happen with the young defensemen like Jones. And I guess Klingberg's not that young, but he's... Youngish. He's, he's young in terms of NHL years, in terms of how long he's been there, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, Andrew, this was a blast, man. I'm glad we, uh, we finally got to these defensemen. Um, people can follow you on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire and check out all your work. And, uh, man, yeah, we, uh, we finally did it. I'm going to try to do goalies, uh, at some point down the road here, but, uh, we've done all the, all the skating positions at least so far, and I'm pretty happy with our lists. And, um, I look forward to having you back on the show sometime down the road. I feel like we're going to need to, uh, do a, Montreal Canadiens deep dive or something because they're certainly uh, warranting our attention with their play early on the season. Yeah, no kidding. It's been a little bit unexpected, but uh, fun at the very least. They're they're playing good hockey, which is strange mm. based on the last few years. Like fun hockey too. Climb yeah. up your yeah, they'll climb up your watchability rankings. Uh-huh. Yeah, that game against uh, Washington was uh, was quite a sight to behold. Um, all right, man. Have a uh, have a good one, and we'll chat soon. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Cheers. and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypediocast.